Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 110 of Caro Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. Our guest this week is someone with one of Rock's golden voices, and he also happens to have written some sublime songs, Justin Hayward of the Moody Blues. Hayward joined the British band in 1966 as a replacement for previous Carol Pop guest, Denny Lane. The early incarnation of the Moody Blues had an R&B flavor, but the lineup featuring singer-guitarist Hayward and fellow newcomer, bassist John Lodge, as well as drummer Graham Edge, multi-instrumentalist Ray Thomas, and keyboardist Mike Pinder, would incorporate classical music, psychedelia, and progressive rock. How much did being in the Moody Blues shape Hayward's songwriting? And how much did Hayward's songwriting shape the Moody Blues? His first album with the band, 1967's Days of Future Past, was a concept record that featured orchestral interludes as a cover today from Dawn to Nights in White Satin. The latter song was one of Hayward's two songwriting contributions, the other being Forever Afternoon, Tuesday, a.k.a. Tuesday Afternoon. Those are the album's two most enduring songs, with Nights in White Satin becoming a worldwide smash when re-released in 1972. Did Hayward write those songs with the album's concept in mind? When he wrote Tuesday Afternoon, was that mid-song tempo change part of it from the beginning? Did he especially enjoy writing songs with multiple distinct parts, such as Question? Was it helpful or frustrating to have all five band members writing songs for those early albums, which also included In Search of the Lost Chord and On the Threshold of a Dream? Did Hayward write songs to match those albums' concepts? Did he feel pressure to write the singles? How, during the band's six-year break in the 1970s, did he wind up recording a solo song backed by 10cc? When Long Distance Voyager was released in 1981, the Moody Blues entered a poppier phase, with Hayward and Lodge dominating the songwriting. Did he appreciate this new dynamic? Hayward's The Voice was a standout on Long Distance Voyager. A couple albums later, Hayward's synth-driven Your Wildest Dreams became the Moody Blues' most popular song since Nights in White Satin, introducing the band to a new audience. Both The Voice and Your Wildest Dreams feature long, adventurous bridges, so of course I ask him about that. Hayward recently completed a U.S. solo tour and has more dates scheduled for 2024. When he performs now, do the fans come more for the band's early material, or that 80s stretch, or some other time? Does he feel more emotionally connected to songs from one era or another? Would he ever consider playing with the surviving Moody Blues again? And how did he feel about King Charles awarding him an OBE, that is, Officer of the Order of the British Empire, in July? He's royalty in our book, too. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Justin Hayward. Thank you for talking to me. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Mark. I noticed that your set list has, it really covers the gamut of your songwriting from the 60s and 70s through 80s hits and, you know, more current stuff that you've done for solo projects. And I'm wondering if you see much of a difference in how you were writing songs over those periods. I'm probably more careful about it now, but that's, uh, you know, uh, I was on, uh, under pressure in the early days to, to write because I think... Um, there was a general expectation that I would have something ready to kind of kick off every album or every recording session, or if Decker gave us some time, that um, I would have something ready. So um, 
I would often be writing under pressure. So I don't say that was a bad thing, but that's right. a very different thing. Now I can be really selective and uh, just choose myself, please, please myself. Well, early on also, those early Moody Blues albums, you had five people writing songs for them. Yet you often you often wrote the singles. Were you sort of aiming to write like the single in that time? And just because of the fact that there were so many people writing albums, was it sort of competitive to get your songs on the records? No, I think there was an understanding that um, each guy would have a certain number of uh, songs. So did that mean that you wrote less? I mean, like in the later albums, you carried more of the songwriting load, like in the 80s. Were you actually writing more songs then? Or was it just a matter of that? It's just more of there's more emphasis on the songs you were writing. Oh, I was always writing lots of songs. And um, I've got lots of bits now that I could finish off if I wanted to. No, no, I, I was always writing lots of things, but I had a different style. So Mike Pinder and I was from an old fashioned school. So I'd have everything done before I played it to anybody. And I'd know exactly what the drum should be and the bass line should be. You know, I have, uh, studio time was very precious to me. So Mike Pinder was the same. So he'd present a song and it would be finished song. And he'd know exactly what he wanted you to play. And um, the same with me. Other guys could, would kind of knock it up in the studio and um, look for ideas from other people that were there and, you know, hope something would work. And it often did. Were the you way of writing? Were you often like the sort of chief arranger then? Like when, you know, if John Lodge would come in with a song, you would sort of work it out together what the instrumentation would be? I think um, a lot of those things happened very quickly for me because I, I didn't like to hang around. Oh. If somebody wasn't uh, didn't know what the what the plan was, it, I, I'm just some one of those awkward people who would just say, "Oh, come on, just do it, it, it do it like this." You know, yeah. that's it. Oh, great! And then we'd be off. When you joined the Moody Blues, they've been known as more of an R and B group. Uh, like when Danny Lane was in there. When you joined, did the Moody Blues kind of shift more toward what you were doing, or did you sort of start off kind of in the mode of what the Moody Blues were, and then it kind of gradually evolved into something else? The three guys that uh, Mike Graham, chiefly, and Ray, after Clint, the original bass player, and Danny had left. Um, which was quite I mean, the band wasn't together for that long. The band was put together in Birmingham around really Denny Cordell uh, and uh, the song Go Now. And um, it was absolutely brilliant. And Denny's voice on that was just perfect. Uh, the three guys that were left after, you know, it all happened very quickly. Clint, bass player, left, Denny left. Um, the three guys that remained wanted to change the the way things that they knew that um, they knew like most people right, that that doing rhythm doing cover songs wasn't where it was gonna wasn't gonna take you many places. So um, Mike really want, Mike was the one that called me and um, he really wanted to change the band to doing their own material doing our own material. And uh, that's why I suppose they were interested in me. Well, and your material was so melodic and um, different from obviously that R&B approach. The, the band became what the three guys that were that brought me to the band wanted it to, to be all along. 
it became the, the, the right Moody Blues for, for everybody, for all five people. When you wrote Nights in White Satin and uh, Tuesday Afternoon, with which both were on Days of Future Past, which was the first album that came out with uh, you and John on it, did you write those knowing of the concept of, you know, each song is going to be a part of the day, so you were taking like afternoon and night, or had you written those and kind of fitted into what the concept of that album became? Nights I'd written, and maybe that had something to do with Decca's idea about the, um, it, it was Decca's project. No matter what anybody else says, there was no plan from us. We didn't have anything. We only had a debt, you know. We were living off our girlfriends. So it, we didn't have any plan or strategy. But Nights was already done. So And a lot of people in Decca believed in it. A lot of people didn't. I meant nothing to me. I never thought anybody was ever going to hear it. But a lot of the elderly gentlemen in Decca really liked it, really liked that. Now, that was recorded for the BBC first, I think, in the May of 1967. And uh, so they'd already existed. But it, we didn't record it until a bit later on for the Days of Future Past. We didn't record it with Decca till the Days of Future Past sessions. Nights was already done. So that wasn't written for a, that album. But uh, Tuesday afternoon, yes, when when the initial discussions with Decker and the sort of concept idea of this demonstration stereo record, because that was what it was meant. It was a budget price album, a demonstrate. Nobody ever thought it would have any success. But they suggested this idea of a day in the life of one going through the day and uh, Peter Knight was part of that, of course, as well, with his orchestral arrangements. And then I said, well, I'd like to do the afternoon, Tuesday afternoon, which I did. And Peter Knight only used three. Um, Peter Knight in his orchestrations, if you listen to that album, only used three themes, which was Tuesday afternoon, um, another Ray's song, Another Morning, and Nights in White Satin. All the orchestral parts on Days of Future Past refer to those three songs. Right. None of the others. Yeah, it comes in as a sort of overture and then sort of keeps recurring. Um, so Tuesday afternoon, you went out and you wrote it. Did you write it on like an acoustic guitar? And, you know, there's this part obviously in the middle of it where, you know, the tempo changes and it's this pretty, you know, it's this shift that we're all used to because we've heard the song so many times. It's such a beautiful song. But when you write it, did you have those two diff distinct parts, you know, together? Like did that, that did just come or was it more like you wrote the Tuesday afternoon part and then came up with this bridge that just was in this different time signature? I like those tempo change things. Um, I don't do them so much now because uh, I like time code on recordings. It's it's so much uh, more fulfilling to be able to get around. But I like those time shows things that I used to do um, because you could sort of fall into it. You know, I, I came back to my parents' house where they were living in the West Country and I, I got my guitar. I went out in a field. And I wrote Tuesday afternoon and I just sat there and wrote it. And I like the idea of after the first bit, just falling into something different. Mm. That's what it always felt like to me. There was no plan. I never thought anybody was ever going to hear it. It was just a thing. Just to, another one of my songs I was throwing up against the wall. Well, the origins of that album are so 
idiosyncratic for you know what became one of the classic rock albums just this demo deca thing as opposed to afterwards where where you guys were more in charge of what you wanted the vision of it to be uh yeah yeah that by the second album that deca just said uh they they literally did the sir edward lewis said i don't know what you boys are doing but people seem to like it so here's some studio time another song uh that you did you know a few albums later was question uh that also has two different distinct parts but that's one where you actually did have two different songs you're working on that you figured out how to put together right uh yeah i did because it was really late at night i knew there was a session on the saturday and uh like 10 to 1 on the saturday and on the and i knew the other guys were expecting me to have something for it and uh i had the the fast bit yeah, and I, I knew how exactly because I had that big a big troll string guitar, and I knew how that was going to work, and um, knew how the bass was going to go, and I and I anticipate. I, I think I knew what Graham would have done, you know, was going to do because um, he was quite predictable, which I loved. He, he was quite predictable in the thing, the the kind of rhythms that he used, and that he thought worked for him, and which I I really loved that. And so, um, yeah, I, I kind of knew how that would be. And then I had the slow bit as well, which I could never, um, which I could never really turn into a full song. So uh, at about two or three in the morning, it must have been, I just gave up. I didn't, well, I, no, I didn't give up. I thought, oh, they might work together and lyrically and um, they might express something. So that's that's what happened. I played it to the other guys the next day. They didn't even think it was two songs. It's just like, oh yeah, we'll do that then. And then we did yeah. it, and I think it was maybe the quickest record we ever made. There's hardly any double tracking on the record, and uh, Mike did his bit very simply and very quickly. So you not only had the two different songs, but you had lyrics for both of them. Yeah, yeah. Do you usually uh, write lyrics and music together, or does one come first? <laughs> that's a funny old question. Yes, that's the old classic old song artist question. The phone call comes first. I, I like to get a groove going on guitar or keyboards, and then something will uh, something will appear that will suggest the lyric. And then I do have lots of bits um, written down that I, that I think are quite interesting. Um, it wouldn't be interesting to anybody else, but I think they're quite interesting. So uh, just little phrases and things. And uh, so that's how it usually happens. I get a groove going and then the rest kind of fits into place. It's, I think somebody once said, you know, it's 3% inspiration and 97% hard work. And that, that's that's very true. So you'll have like notebooks where you'll write down phrases and then, you know, when you're coming up with the music, you'll think, oh, this sort of fits into that. I have notes. Um uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm always writing with a purpose. I don't look around later for things. I'm always going at it with a purpose, and I'm I'm I roll these phrases around in my head, and uh, then that they they get done in a song. In general, when you would write for those you know Moody Blues albums up to you know like the early seventies, would would the songs you'd be writing kind of be writing to fit what you felt like the mood of the album was or the theme of the album was or was it the other way around where you would write songs and they would think oh this is sort of this is maybe the direction this new album is going to go i think that was true in um certainly in lost chord because because we thought uh, after days of future past we thought oh that sort of give it a concept idea that's that's not a bad idea really 
and uh, and Deco had given us this studio time. So I, d- I don't know. If probably Graham came up with um, the uh, you know in search of a lost chord because I, I remember Mike used to play it on the piano. Mike could play like he was in a pub uh, piano, which I was admired at that kind of way of playing. And uh, I think he he did the old Schnozzle Durante thing, Jimmy Durante thing, you know, and sort of the lost chord. And I, th- I have to admit that's where it came from. But um, we thought it was a nice idea. So um, we were looking everywhere for the lost chord. And uh, Threshold of a Dream started to get a bit more kind of nebulous. Children's Children was really Tony Clark's album. It was something that he wanted to do, space kind of thing. Yes, so sometimes I did write songs that uh, very easily could be just turned. That story idea would very helpfully help me to finish off a song. Revolution Brewing, Illinois' largest independent brewery, has moved beyond beer with its new sparkling hop water, Super Zero. It delivers the citrusy hop flavor you'd expect from the makers of the best-selling Antihero IPA. In fact, Superhero matches Antihero's hop dosing rate as it uses two contemporary hop varieties that win out for flavor and refreshment. Yet it contains no alcohol, calories, carbohydrates, or sugars. If you're taking a break from beer, Super Zero is the super alternative. It's available in six packs at stores and on RevBrew.com. So after Seven Sojourn, you you guys took a four-year break. You had an album that you did uh, with John Lodge, and you had a single, Blue Guitar, in which you were backed by 10CC. How did you end up working with 10CC on one song? It was recorded before the Blue Jays album with with just me and Eric Stewart, Lowell Cream, Kevin Godley, and Graham Goldman played bass. So after Blue Jays, they were just looking for, hey, like, have you got something else? And um, there wasn't anything. And I said, well, I, I did this song, thing called Blue Guitar with um, 10CC. Oh, well, put that out, you know, in your both names. And it's like, oh, well, okay then. Yeah. So um, that's what we did. So it was recorded before um, the Blue Jays album uh, up in Manchester. I was a director of the uh, Strawberry Studios in Manchester with my friend Eric Stewart. Okay. And that was made, yeah. So were they just, you know, it happened to be available and you said, hey, I have this new song, let's just go in the studio mean, and record it? Well, they were called Hot Legs at the time and they'd supported us, I think, somewhere, maybe on the last British tour that we did before um, before the, uh, you know, the, the moving apart. I wouldn't know what to call it. It wasn't splitting up, but before the going in different directions time. And uh, yeah, they were called Hot Legs and they were just friends of mine. Eric was a dear friend since the 60s. And uh, so it was just a friend of mine anyway. So, and then they started that studio. They were all based in Manchester. And I just used to go up there a lot and just play. They were just having fun. The studio was successful. Right. And as a group of people, they were having fun. And I think it was only after that that they formed themselves again from Hot Legs into 10CC. 
I'm not sure Graham was in Hot Legs. Graham yeah, he was, yeah, he wasn't. I wasn't aware that that song was recorded so early then. I was thinking yeah. it was more in like that 74 era because that's when that finally came out. I think um, it was maybe 74. I think I did record it in 74, but I think Blue Jays was a bit later than that, wasn't it? Then the album Octave came out back with so the Moody Blues regrouping, and then there was another three-year break, and then there was Long Distance Voyager. And Long Distance Voyager seems like the start of this totally different period. Does it? Did it feel that way to you? Well, yes, because uh, it was completely... Uh, it was, because uh, Mike and Tony had left, so we had a new producer and um, a new keyboard player. It was a different group of people in the studio altogether. And, you know, you had The Voice, which was a wonderful song, you know, and these are sort of catchy songs. There's more sort of electronics in them. Uh, it, it's sort of an up-to-date song sound for what was then 1981. But it also, I was thinking about how, like, The Voice and Your Wildest Dreams both still have these very um, adventurous bridges where it's like the bridge isn't just like a few lines. Like, it's actually this whole other you know, major section of the song. Um, and so in a way, it still kind of harks back to your other songwriting in that you're just using, you know, sort of shifting the scenes within the songs, despite, uh, you know, it also being a catchy radio pop song. Well, thank you. Were you sort of consciously still sort of thinking, I, I really like having these other bridges in these songs or consciously trying to balance this sense of kind of ambition within the songwriting structure with also trying to keep it contained with something that, you know, would be a catchy song. No, I, I like that, 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 that movement. I like that falling into something else and to uh, uh, open another door and go into another room in a song. And uh, I, I love that feeling. Like, oh, what's happened? <laughs> I was going along quite nicely and this happened. Oh, that's great. So I, I like that. So lucky to be songwriters, so lucky to have the freedom to not be under pressure to, uh, I'm in an organisation, lucky enough to be asked to be in an organisation called SODS, Society of Distinguished Songwriters, and a different king every year. And I, and I was King SOD for one year. And there's, I, I've been in the organisation since the um, early 1980s. And so many of the writers, you know, that, from my time, really, from this, from the sixties and and seventies, were, were under such pressure. You know, not being performers, they were under such pressure to come up with something and to have to um, compromise on their own. Uh, you know, integrity. No, no, integrity is not the word, but on their own, what they'd really like to have done. But doesn't matter, you know. They got the song away, and they got the song heard. And uh, I'm just lucky enough to never have had that pressure. I was ever since I was a boy when I first when I was with Marty Wilde, you know, when when um, I was able to record a few things, I, I was um, bullish enough to just do what I wanted to do. To say no, I don't think I'll do that. I think I'll do what I want to do, and um, <laughs> I'm still standing. Well, last year you were appointed Officer of the Order of the British Empire, an OBE. Uh, did you ever think that you putting songs out in the world would result in something like that? How could I possibly think that that <clears throat> would happen? I, it was a great honour because the Queen um, honoured me with that particular um, well, title. It, but the, the Queen passed not long after that. And so I was actually presented with the medal for it, which is very beautiful, at the investiture ceremony in Windsor by the King. 
So I was given it by, I was awarded it by the Queen, but given it by the King, which is fantastic. Hmm. What was that day like for you when you were there? Did it feel like the capstone of something? You mean the investiture day? In, in yeah. Windsor? Yeah. Uh, It was the day of the most kindness I've ever known. I wish I could have turned up with five different tour managers that I've worked with and and walked them through and said, now this is how it should be done. Look, you see, I'm going to this person. They know all about me. I'm going to another room here, which is just as beautiful. And they know all about me too, because I'm going through this beautiful castle and everything is set up. Everything has been thought about with kindness and with care. And that's the great impression for me and my family from that from that day was that everybody knew that nobody, you know, people like me expect somebody to say, no, I'm told you're a musician and what do you do? Hmm. And I'm from that generation where people say, no, what do you do? I'm told I'm told I should have heard of you. Nothing like that at all. Everybody knew exactly what everybody was. And it was it was so kind and so beautiful. Yeah, there's a, a lot of a lot of love in that castle. For me and my family, it's just tremendous. That's yeah. great. I, you know, and, and again, you're you're touring now. I've seen some clips on YouTube of you playing like question, for instance, and the audience is singing the entire song with you or as much of it as they as they can. Um, is that ever anything you would have expected when you were writing these songs that that, you know, so many years later, people would just be coming out just to sing them and share them with you? I didn't expect anything. Uh, I didn't know. I, I still don't know what's going to happen next week, really. So I, I can't say that, I, you know, I said at the beginning, there's no plan, there's no strategy. So uh, I don't know. Um, no, I, of course, I, you know, could, could I ever imagine? No, no, I couldn't possibly imagine that. And again, you're playing songs from, you know, sort of the 80s and beyond. Were there sort of two sets of Moody Blues fans that kind of merged? Or is it all just been one continuum of the people who, you know, were on board for, uh, you know, the story in your eyes are also the ones who were really enjoying, you know, your wildest dreams? There are different generations involved because uh, wildest dreams... I think, uh, well, probably started with, it was a buzz with Long Distance Voyager, but then Wildest Dreams really introduced the Moody's to a whole new audience, a new generation. And you could see the generation changing. So, you know, a lot of people of, of my age now who were there um, when Days of Future Passed and Lost Court came out, you know, um, they're, they're just not just don't go to concerts anymore or it's it's a different kind of generation but i think mostly the generation that's with us now is from the time of wildest dreams and uh that, that kind of joined us then and and then learned about the other stuff that we'd done earlier and uh then p- people join along this road at different times so but I could definitely see a change with Wildest Dreams. The the audience changed with Wildest Dreams, mm. yes. The when generation you, changed. When you're performing these songs, do you feel sort of an equal emotional connection to all of them? Or are there some that are especially like that's the one that's kind of feels most relevant or close to my heart right now? Uh, so- songs have that and uh, music. And uh, we, we all know this, have, have the ability to put us in a, in a time and place and evoke memories uh, but um, 
they do particularly for me songs are a wonderful way of remembering where and what i can remember everything about where i was when i wrote a particular song and um that's that's an amazing thing isn't it because i think it's just such a concentration of kind of effort and um and thoughts that it it stays with you and so some of these songs mean so much to me because they take me to a place where the emotions were really high and something was going on that was really important to me and uh that that um, I don't say it was expressed in the song, not at all, but the um, but the place and the time and the uh, experience and the emotions uh, were so strong that I'm taken back to exactly that moment. Has the experience of performing live changed over the years? Uh, you know, like how you would feel when you were performing songs at these big concerts in the '70s versus you know how you're performing them now. Well, we we were too. Um, bands in one because we were a recording band that had a style of recording with the drums quite far back and the acoustic guitars forward and the voices uh, built around the voice and Mike's Mellotron and that, that was the recording band. On the road we were you know giant Marshall stacks you know 800 watts each and um, crash bang wallop and had to do things in a different way so i think um it got louder and louder and louder now that was the, the thing that's changed is the volume you know i started off with an ac30 on stage and uh, then it went to a 50 watt marshall then it went to a 200 watt marshall then an 800 watt stack then during the 80s, it kind of came back as PA systems got better so that you didn't have to throw it out from the stage. But uh, it, it would come from the PA. And now I'm back to pretty much like it was in the beginning, which I really like. It's a much quieter feel. I don't say that I'll always be like that, but um, I'll always that'll always satisfy me. But um, I was not sorry to get rid of the to 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 bring the the volume back, and then my acoustic guitars that I bring from home so, sound so nice. You, you you they shouldn't be overpowered by just sheer volume of stuff of other stuff. It looks like you're playing a, a twelve string, and probably one that you've played for a long time. I have quite a few guitars. I, I have some beautiful McPhersons that uh, that I've only come across recently. They're fantastic road guitars. Yeah, a couple, a few of the guitars I've had for a very long time. And some I've just, you know, I use a lot of different tunings, so I change guitar quite a lot. But um, each of these guitars is so beautiful and uh, chosen very carefully and and really makes, is the is the heart and soul of these songs. And you really have one of the, you know, just the distinct, beautiful voices in rock, and you still do this many years later. What do you do to preserve your voice and keep that quality? That's sad, sad to say. Nothing, really. I mean, unfortunately, I don't look after my voice. My voice looks after me. That's it. I mean, you're still singing, you know, Nights in White Satin and and all of these, you're hitting these notes. So whatever, whatever it is you're doing or not doing, something is working there because you still sound like yourself and haven't, you know, you, it doesn't sound like you're changing the keys on your songs like a lot of older musicians no. do. No, no, they're in a range that I feel comfortable with. Yeah. 
there's no such thing as a Moody Blues reunion at this point because of who's not around. Would you go back and play with John Lodge again or do any sort of more formal Moody Blues related tour or project? I'm lucky enough to be able to do what I want to do. And as long as I can do that, I'm going to do, do what I want to do. Uh, I felt when Graham passed, Gra Graham loved the Moody Blues so much that he, he made it, he always made it happen. He kept it together and made it happen. And um, it, since his passing, it can't be the Moody Blues anymore. It isn't the Moody Blues anymore. And I, I don't want to be in a tribute band with other people doing with other people who just weren't there. And I, I think it, it's dishonest. I think I think that stuff is dishonest. Personally, this is just my opinion. It's not the opinion I expect anyone else to take. But if I go and see somebody, I want to see the person who played and sang that song that I love so much. I want to see the person who sang that song and who played that song. If I can't see that, if, if, uh, then I won't bother. You know, I'll just listen to the record. I don't want to hear somebody else do it. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want to hear a, a tribute band. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you uh, talking to me for this. Um, and I hope you have a wonderful time while you're here in our beautiful city of Chicago. Uh, I know you've been here many times before. Um, I don't know if you have any distinct Chicago memories uh, to share, but, uh, you know, I hope you make some happy new ones. Oh, I can't, what a lovely thought. Yes, I've got very fond memories of being here and, uh, you know, the club that we played when we very first came would have been 68 and uh, a psychedelic club. And, uh, yeah, I think the light show was the top of the bill. It's fine by me. It was very cold. I know that. And uh, But what what a city. Man, what, what, I drove in with, with my tour manager, and we just, you know, you see that skyline and you approach it and uh, you think, oh, man, you know, I'm so lucky. And we both sort of slowed down the car and said, man, we're so lucky to just to do to be doing this, to be driving to this great city. And somebody's given us a job, <laughs> given us a gig. And here we are again coming to this great, we just caught it at that time of night when the, it just looks so beautiful and uh, uh, everything is kind of silhouetted. Uh, I'm very lucky and uh, very grateful and uh, lovely to be here. Yeah. Well, we're lucky to have you here as well. Thank you so much, uh, Justin. I really appreciate it. It's a real honor to get to talk to you. Thanks so much. Pleasure. That's all for episode 110 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Justin Hayward for revisiting the creative dynamics behind his groundbreaking work with the Moody Blues and taking us up to present day. He still sounds fantastic. Go to justinhayward.com to listen to and buy his solo music, including his most recent albums, Spirits of the Western Sky, from 2013. You also can order Justin Hayward merch and read about his 2024 tour dates, scheduled mostly for England in March. There's a Justin Hayward Twitter account, at Hayward Music, and one on Instagram, at Justin Hayward Music. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who I know is out there somewhere, 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 
I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter and Instagram at Carol Popcast. You can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also, please visit carolpop.com where you can support this podcast by becoming an official Carol Pop friend or contributing whatever you want via PayPal. We're dedicated to keeping Carol Pop free and sustainable, and we appreciate your help. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks.